All right, what's up, Mountain? How we doing? Awesome. Let's give a brief shout out to everyone gathering at all of our locations, starting with our Abingdon campus, Aberdeen, Mountain Road. Our friends joining us online, welcome. And best for last, our folks in Edgewood, make some noise. So glad that you're joining us today. We're continuing in our series, Making Life Work, where we've been looking at the wisdom of Proverbs and how it applies to areas of our life. And today, we're looking at making life work with money. All right, I know this is a very controversial topic, so I'm telling you where we're going straight out of the gate. You guys ready? All right. Making life work with money is more about who you are than what you have. You guys ready to dive in? Awesome. William Powell Firth was a Victorian age painter from Great Britain who specialized in a type of art known as genre painting. And genre painting took ordinary scenarios and placed them on a canvas. So if we we're gonna do modern examples of this, it would be like mother of three at Wegmans or father of five on the couch with his remote, you know, things like this. But the way that Firth would use it is that he would take a contrast between the extraordinary, place it on the canvas with the ordinary in order to create a contrast that existed behind the artwork in his culture. So in our modern examples, it would be mother of three at Wegmans. And then Beyonce is there. Like surely Beyonce uses Instacart. Or father of five on the couch with his remote and Tom Brady, the goat, who, if he had it his way, would be playing on that screen until he's 75. But that's a whole other thing, right? How Firth would use this technique would be to expose things in culture between the haves and the have-nots. Painted together are the respected and the outcast. Sharing the same canvas are the rich and the poor. One of Firth's most notable artworks is the 1546 artwork known as The Crossing Sweeper. And in The Crossing Sweeper, there are two main subjects. The boy that's on your right who's doing the profession that the painting is named after, and the wealthy woman making her way across the road. Now, crossing sweeping was one of the lowest of the low professions in Victorian England at the time. And there's many ways that Firth creates contrast in this painting. But notice how the two of them are not even looking at each other. This is a very divisive picture. And you might be wondering if this contrast has followed us to today. And sadly, it has, because it's deeply embedded in the human story. Check this out. This is a 2021 artwork by the artist Georgia Lupi, and it's called Connecting the Dots. And it graphically represents the evolution of income inequality in America over the last 40 years. It utilizes circular cutouts of found objects like, get this, like real personal checks, receipts, bank statements, and other documents, all color-coded, dangling from three layers of string within a six-foot wooden frame. A six-foot reminder 
that we haven't quite left this contrast in the past yet. I think the question this is begging us to ask is, is this working for us? Do the contrasted pictures that tell us that our place in society is based on what we have, are those really helping us make life work? I'm sure we're probably wondering, this can't be the only artwork, and yet, the very art that human history has been putting on the canvas for over thousands of years is the artwork that we currently own. And yet this topic is far too important for us to disengage. We have genuine struggle, genuine concerns when it comes to money that are good, and they come down to our kitchen table and what does or doesn't go on it, our jobs and our vision for our career and our future, our college choices and what colleges we apply to or don't apply to, even our selection of community leadership. All of it is a genuine struggle, a genuine tension with money that we have. And it leads to the fact that most Americans say that it's the third most important issue to them, according to a recent study done by Gallup. And when we have that genuine tension and we're seeking advice, we have a big test when it comes to how we're going to use our money. And we reach for our phone we're bombarded with loads of influences. Infinite TikTok life hacks, and including the guy that's standing in front of the mansion in your YouTube commercials. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. All of it is a steady voice of progress that's continually whispering at it. It's like, Psst, hey, over here, what you have isn't enough. Here's how to raise the bar. Here's how to make your money work for you. Come on, let's get it. It's, this, it's for this reason that the average American family believes that the average family of four needs, catch this, $85,000 a year to get by, when 10 years ago, that number was 58 so amidst all the noise, we understand that this is an important issue. And all we're looking for is artwork that we can not only trust, but artwork that is good, artwork that is not divisive, artwork that brings us all together. And in our series, Making Life Work, we've been examining that better artwork crafted by artists that did not use paint or brushes, but words. And those words are compiled within the ancient text that most of us are holding in front of us that we know as scripture. And what's fitting is that those artists that used words, trusted in a covenant God who didn't just make life work with words, he made life possible the compassionate and gracious creator who made reality and everything in it with words. And that reality that he made in the very beginning is the artwork that our hearts long for. It's the artwork that starts with the skies and the land and everything that fills them. All of it 
invested with this potential for flourishing and regenerative life, including us, humanity, who before we could even recognize the dust that we were plucked from, we were invested with the very glory of our creator. And then we were placed atop a cosmic garden sanctuary called Eden at the meeting place between heaven and earth. And we were tasked with spreading that sanctuary to the ends of the good world that God made, and God's words were his wisdom to his human partners on how he was, how we were to do that. This is the way it was supposed to be. This is the better artwork, all conceived in the mind of God and birthed by his speech that has the power to both create and recreate. So Proverbs, the place we are going today to learn how to make life work with money, is contained within a larger artwork that is dynamic, that depicts God and humanity that we know as Scripture. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and make your way to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. Now, important caveat while you're getting there. Normally, when we hear a message about finances, we come with our pad and pencil ready to go, hearing what the Bible has to say about our 401k, or whether we should stay single stock or diversify, or whether our tithe is enough, and we want that decision sealed with a thus saith the Lord of hosts. But unfortunately, while Proverbs does deal with those kinds of things, that's not all that Proverbs has to talk about. The main thrust of Proverbs and what it talks about with money is more relationally driven. So if we could sum up what the biblical authors and the authors of Proverbs are trying to teach us about money, I believe Proverbs 22.2 could teach us a lot. So let's dive in. Proverbs 22 verse 2. The rich and the poor stop there. Now, there's seven different words for rich and poor in the Hebrew Bible and in Proverbs, and there are four for poor, three for rich, and all of them have their different nuances. But when the biblical authors use these categories, they're trying to alert us to something. Something has gone wrong. They're acknowledging human relationships outside of Eden, which came about because when we came to a genuine struggle, when we came to a point of testing, we found an influence that met us there. And the voice sounded something like this. Psst, hey, over here. What you have isn't enough. The God who said you have everything you need, he's lying to you. Here's how to raise the bar. Here's how to make your life work for you. You can be like that God. It's a voice and an influence that can only be described as sinister and evil. And it deceived the original human pair, into seeking wisdom in their own eyes instead of the wisdom of the God who created them, which led to the exile of humanity from that garden sanctuary we just talked about earlier. 
So if we could summarize the nuanced picture that Proverbs and the Hebrew Bible give us about the post-Eden categories of rich and poor, starting with poverty, it would be this. God is the protector of the poor, but does not prefer poverty. God is the protector of those who cannot protect themselves, but does not prefer a world where that is a possibility. In regards to wealth, the picture is like this. Wealth is a provision from God, but trusting in and seeking wealth for its own sake will lead to ruin. The ideal picture is the combination of wealth and righteousness together. And we'll unpack that more in a moment, but let's go to the next part of the verse. Rich and poor have this in common. Wait a minute. So if you're tracking with Proverbs, this is where the record scratch moment comes in. There are two words that when the the author of Proverbs uses these two words together, they are trying to develop a contrast. They're noting the way that it is in the world as it is right there. And those words are osher for rich and resh for poor. And when they're used together, it's developing a contrast. But just like first contrast genre painting, the authors of Proverbs are placing in uh, otherworldly contrast into the worldly picture that we see. And this time, what's behind the artwork is telling us that the identity-stealing categories of rich and poor don't tell the full story. In fact, in the language the people of God spoke at the time, this part of the verse, it rhymes. Rich and poor have this in common. Ashir, varash, nifgashu. It's telling us that the whole thing is being brought together by someone or something powerful enough to bring these opposing groups in union. Let's keep reading to see who or what is doing that. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord makes them all. So what this is saying is this. Beyond what shoes your money can or can't put on your feet, beyond what social circles or neighborhoods your money can or cannot get you into, beyond even what your money can get on your kitchen table or what bills it can or cannot pay, you, as you are, have a value that cannot be quantified by dollars and cents, but by the infinite love of an infinite God who loves you so deeply as to shatter the categories this world has placed on you. Your identity is not placed in what you have or what you own, but who made you. And therefore, what you do with your money is more about who you are than what you have. And if that's true, then you can give generously, knowing that what you give or get doesn't define you, but it has the power to help someone else see themselves in the way that God sees them. This is a way of life that can only be described as a beautiful prophetic artwork that's waiting to collide with the picture of this world and bring about flourishing for all sorts of people everywhere. But unfortunately, 
the way that humanity tends to make life work is more in line with saying that what you have defines you more than who you are. And that leads to the kind of artwork that we saw earlier. Exploitation, ridicule, angst, division, and flat-out apathy, like who cares anymore? Turns out that that kind of way of living doesn't make anything work. In fact, it's part of the problem. So where do we turn? If we want to be led into a picture of peace with finances, who's going to lead us there? Well, the New Testament authors saw Jesus of Nazareth as that leader. God becomes humanity to announce the inauguration of his reign as king, a redrawing of the artwork. In his kingdom order, the class that you seek isn't first, it's last. It flows backwards. And the fact that we even see that as backwards shows the reason why we need it. In this kingdom, everyone, regardless of status, is invited to claim a seat at the same eternally glorious table, not because of what they have, or what they can contribute, or how the world classifies them, but based on who the king is. King Jesus, with his signs and wonders, with his teaching, and with his compassionate and gracious heart, is pulling up a seat at the table for rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, screw up and upright, all because those things never define them, but they are defined by a king whose reign has no end, and that king is Jesus. But you could imagine how those who thrive or profit off of having these distinctions would feel about Jesus coming onto the scene. They feel that threat, both to them personally and the world that they're building. Even God's people, Israel, the people responsible for the Proverbs we've been studying in this series, the family that God chose to help make life work, even they became complicit in creating a kingdom that was against the arrival of the king. They wanted Israel became a people that wanted to paint the artwork of Eden with the paint of this world. This tension between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God, it all came to a head when Jesus rode into the nation's capital to challenge the leaders of God's people in Jerusalem. Matthew 22, verses 15 through 21. Then the Pharisees, the religious elite at the time, went and plotted how to trap him by what he said, him meaning Jesus. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care about what anyone thinks, nor do you show any partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Pause here. 
We're talking about Caesar, the most powerful office in human history up until this point. And the values of its kingdom is represented in the tax that's being talked about. That is being pitted against King Jesus and the values of his kingdom. The divisive artwork of human history has come to land on Jesus's lap. How does he respond? Love this, verse 18. Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. What Jesus is teaching us here is that how you view your money speaks volumes about where your ultimate allegiance lies. And it also speaks volumes about the image that you have of yourself. Interestingly enough, the word that's used here for image in verse 20 would have been familiar to Jesus' hearers because it is the very same word used to describe the royal status that God, in his wisdom, placed upon humanity at the beginning of his artwork. An identity that cannot be given or taken away by Caesar nor any other human ruler before or after him. Because... When Rome and their allies tried to break the image of God in the person of Jesus by placing him on a criminal's cross, and then when he died, placing him in a borrowed tomb, he didn't stay dead. He rose three days later, proving that God's unrivaled love for humanity is a reality that exists beyond the grave and it has value that is indeed eternal. So here we are, the endless test, the genuine test of our ultimate allegiance for both Matthew's first century hearers and for us here today. We can choose to give our ultimate allegiance to Caesar and his ilk, which only lasts as long as they have monopoly money. Or we can choose to give our ultimate allegiance to the eternal kingdom of God, where the economy is built with living stones, brothers and sisters coming together, gathered by a loving father, where the currency is a bloody cross and an empty tomb of a gracious savior, and where the Holy Spirit serves as a down payment of life that extends beyond the grave, available for us here today, right now. The old order is passing away, the new order is here and the artwork, the paint and the brushes are set the canvas is up and it's our turn to paint the question is what artwork will you make? Proverbs 3.9 says honor the Lord with your possessions and we've talked a lot about the why today and now we're going to turn to talking about the how. Now, when I thought about who could talk about the how here, um, there's no one better than my wife, Emily Grant. 
And here's the thing, Proverbs has something to say about the value of a spouse, an awesome spouse. Proverbs Proverbs 31 says, who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will not lack anything good. I'm here to tell you that biblical wisdom is true. Please welcome my beautiful wife, Emily Grant. Greg, that's such an incredible reminder. We're all painting a picture with our lives. And the question is, what does that picture look like? Yeah. So let's get practical for a few minutes here and just talk about what is the picture that Proverbs is painting for us practically and maybe who you are regarding money. So we've already learned that the rich and the poor, God created them both. It's kind of a fact of life. There will always be someone with more money than you, and there will always be someone with less money than you. However, one thing that Proverbs, the author of Proverbs is actually pointing out to us is that poverty is a different story. Remember that God is the protector of the poor, but does not prefer poverty. Now check this out. We notice this displayed in the different Hebrew words that are most commonly translated as poor and as poverty throughout Proverbs. The word for poor means those who have less money, whereas the word for poverty means those who are totally destitute, who have to beg to survive. And the big difference we see is how they're used. So when we see the word poverty, it's almost always used negatively. It's something that Proverbs tells us over and over again to avoid. And then it tells us how to avoid it. So today I want to check out three verses that are kind of outlining how to avoid poverty. And as we go through here, kind of learn what the author of Proverbs was trying to put down for us to pick up. So we'll start with Proverbs 13, 18. Here it warns us to not ignore discipline. It says, whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Now my brother-in-law, he's a financial advisor. So when I asked him, hey, what's like the number one thing that someone can do to become disciplined with their money? He said, make a budget, make a spending plan. Disciplining your dollars As soon as they come in, earmarking them for where they're going to go out. No matter how much money you make, this is the number one way that you can be disciplined with your money. Now, I know for us, this was something that we had to learn. It's kind of a a tool that you put into your toolbox and you practice it over and over again. And one of our favorite resources to learn this practice was taking Financial Peace University. And they have an awesome tool called the Every Dollar app that we use every single month. I recommend you download it. There's a free version of it. And you can kind of use that to track your money as it comes in and as it goes out. And it just brings so much peace to our lives, knowing where that money is coming and where that money is going, and it's just one of the ways that you can be disciplined with your money. Next up, Proverbs 6 talks about freeing yourself from poverty by avoiding debt and not co-signing for others. Now, Proverbs 22.7 says it pretty poignantly that the poor are always ruled over by the rich, so don't borrow and put yourself under their power. Debt is not really spoken of favorably in Proverbs. Over and over again, it's telling us to avoid debt. Now, I know that debt can be a safety net for many of us, and there are such things as good debt, that is true, but there also might be some peace that God has waiting for you on the other side of not owing man, on the other side of knowing that as soon as your dollars come in, they're not just going straight out to cover your bills and cover those payments, 
but maybe could be used instead to paint that picture of the world that God's creating by being generous in other ways. Now, this is something that I've experienced firsthand is the peace that comes when you're not carrying debt. When, um, when I was a kid, I was around eight years old, my parents were learning some of these biblical principles. And they were learning about what it means to not owe, not owe any man. And one of the things that they were really looking to do was they wanted the, the experience of having total freedom, owing no one anything, and that included the mortgage company. So I'm one of 10 kids, you should know that. Um, and yes, it was a rowdy household. We had a great time all the time. And my dad was kind of our sole provider. And so it was a big commitment for them to set that goal and to go for it. We sacrificed a lot of family time. Um, it wasn't really an easy season necessarily. There was a lot of discipline involved for my dad to be gone all of those nights. I remember my little brother, sometimes he would just cry himself to sleep because he missed daddy so much. But we also got to be part of the process of watching that number go down. Every single time a paycheck came in, our parents would kind of gather us around and show us the number we started with and show us the number that got paid off. And every paycheck, it would go down and down and down and down until eventually it hit zero. And we all celebrated and it was really, really cool. And then a couple months later, the financial crash of 2008 happened. And while the world was rocking under the turmoil of that season, and a lot of houses were going on into foreclosure, our family's house just had so much peace, so much calm. My parents, without a mortgage payment, can you imagine, they were able to be so generous during that time when so many others were really struggling. So that, that whole experience really influenced me in the way that I kind of saw the world. And when it came to debt, I kind of brought a lot of those, um, a lot of that experience into our relationship. Yeah, so absolutely. when we first got together, that yeah. was something we sat down and did. We kind of just outlined, okay, what debts do we have? Where's the money coming in? Where's the money going out? And we totaled up all of our debt and we had close to $100,000. Um, car notes some student loans, some credit cards, a couple other little little odds and ends here and there. I don't know if you wanna go ahead and tell some of the story. Yeah, she's far too kind because <laughs> when we were doing this, when we, when we wrote out our debt smallest to largest and it totaled that amount we were dating and none of it was hers, it was mine. And um, when I saw that, what I realized was that that debt was the symptom of a larger problem and that is something I've been carrying with me since I was little is that um, I had a dissatisfaction with myself, and I was trying to use money to cover that dissatisfaction. But it wasn't until I realized that the love of God in Christ is more powerful than even my dissatisfaction with myself, or that number that I wrote down on that piece of paper, it wasn't until then that it gave me the ability to shake free of those chains and then to buckle down, set some goals, take some extra jobs, and pay off that debt before we got married. One of those was my car. It's a 2017 Chevrolet Impala, $37,000 loan, 11% interest rate, over 65 months. That's six years. And so I think it was 75. Wait, 75 or six? Anyway, it, it was a long time. Um, so... It was just a, such a difficult time, but getting free of that gave me peace in three areas. Um, peace on payday, peace at the cash register, and peace on the first of the month. And that led me to be able to be formed through generosity. So I am super grateful for that season. 
Yeah, and you were so disciplined in that season too, and I really admired that. And I just gotta tell you guys, like there's so much peace on the other side of not having debt because when, when your paycheck comes in, like the moment that God says like, hey, I want you to go bless that person or hey, there's a need. Like, oh, look at that. Like that, that's something that maybe you could do something about. Like you can just turn around and you can just do it and not even think twice. And it's such a blessing. So Proverbs is just saying avoid debt so you can live generously. Now, last I wanna show 20, uh, Proverbs 28, 19. This passage says, those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. So I just want you guys to picture in your mind, answer this question, like what work has God put in front of you to do today? Now, I'm on the social world a lot, and so I know a lot of the work that you could be doing today. There's a lot of passive income streams you could be building, a lot of parlays you could be placing, and a lot of um, opportunities to kind of, you know, make it big really, really quick. And all of those things, they look really, really good on the surface. And don't hear me wrong, there's, there's such a thing as a healthy, productive goal. But there's also these goals that are so far out there and they might distract. If they distract and take away from the work that God's put in front of you today, and if it's an effort to maybe take the easy route, take a shortcut, then it might be a fantasy. I think the author of Proverbs here is asking us, are you chasing any fantasies today? Now, Proverb paints a better picture for us too. Instead of trying to find a shortcut, consistently show up to serve others through the work that God's put in front of you. Be diligent with the work God's put in front of you. Don't run away from your work just because it's hard. Stay diligent and then trust that God will provide. Now, if poverty is the thing that we're supposed to be avoiding, right, then it might be like a fair assessment to say, all right, well, that means we must be like supposed to be running after wealth, right? Instead of avoiding being like poor, get money instead, right? Sure, that's the logical thought. You would think that, but Proverbs actually is not saying that. Hmm. What Proverbs is saying is that riches, it's really used just throughout Proverbs to describe people who have a great amount of money and it shows ways that you can have wealth and use use it to align with God's will for the world or use it in ways that don't align with God's will for the world. So it says that riches are a great byproduct of wisdom, but it's not everything. You can't trust money on its own, and there's other things that you should choose over top of just getting more money. Now, it really can't be trusted on its own, and also Proverbs warns over and over again, if you have wealth, it warns of using the power that wealth gives you in a negative way to hurt others or harm others. Because if you have any amount of money, you have power over those who have less than you. And I think the strongest message that Proverbs is sending us in many, many passages is just like if God is the protector of the poor and you are following God and trying to align yourself with his ways and the ways that he created the world to be, then you will order your dollars around this new order that God is creating, around this new picture that he's painting by being generous, by taking care of those who have less. So ultimately, it's not about building wealth. It's about using any money that God has given you wisely towards his purposes in the world and not your own. So here's some questions I would love to leave with you. The first is, are you someone who God can trust with money? 
And by trust with money, I mean, are you someone who will take that money and use it to build your picture of the world or God's picture of the world? Are you disciplined with the money that God puts into your hands? Are you generous? Are you taking care of those who are in need? And are you someone who trusts God? This one can be hard for me because sometimes it's easier to trust that number in the bank account because it feels way more secure than a God who sometimes I don't know where we're going. But it's honestly a false sense of security at the end of the day because at the end of the day, he's the one that's in control. He's the one that created everything. He is the one who is leading. He's my provider. And it's more about who I am in him than what I have. It's more about who you are than what you have. Thank you so much, Emily, for sharing. We're gonna go ahead and close in prayer together to, to see God working in this way in our community. So let's go ahead and go to God together. God, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever, and you love us in a way that completely changes and shifts the categories that we have for ourselves and even what we own and what we possess, God. We, we just pray that you would help us to remember that your love is with us and it abides with us in every single moment of the day, letting us know that we are loved and cherished and cared for beyond our imagination's comprehension. We pray that that love would take root in us as a community so that from us individually to us as a church, um, to Hartford County, to the ends of the earth, they would see a picture of generosity and money flowing to people that are in need to honoring you and your kingdom. And God, we pray this all in your mighty and strong name. Amen.